Hello again, Hillside. Um, as you know, over a year ago, you, the congregation, appointed a team of your fellow Hillside members to discern God's will as to who would be our next senior pastor. Uh, the eight of us on the team, uh, led by Jenny LaSalle, have been diligently working and praying and seeking God's will. And uh, we believe that we have found the candidate uh, for Hillside. And uh, as a member of this team, uh, I am extremely pleased and excited to introduce to you here in the Hillside Sanctuary, uh, for the first time live, uh, Pastor Dan Seitz. Dan, take us away this morning. Oh, thank you so much, Matt. Well, good morning to you. Uh, it is a real thrill for Allison, Joshua, Andrew, and I to be with you this morning. We are really grateful and really excited, and we want to thank you for welcoming us into your church. Uh, I was born in San Jose, only about 45 minutes from here, in the shadow of the great mall of Milpitas. And when I was a kid, like everyone, we would get inundated with catalogs from the stores you would find in that mall, especially around Christmas. And as a rule, uh, I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to those catalogs, but there was always one exception, the Sharper Image catalog. And I know that some of you remember it. And uh, one afternoon, not having uh, anything to do, probably because my twin brother had kicked me out of his room for some way that I antagonized him, I cracked open this catalog and I was amazed by the products that I saw in there, futuristic things that you could not find anywhere else. Now, some of these were fun and helpful, like, and I think a picture will pop up, the getaway triple action massage chair, and others were just plain weird, like this one, the beverage dispensing cushion. Yes, you heard me right. This was a squishy thermos which doubled as a stadium seat. I'm not sure that product ever took off. But what got me thinking about the Sharper Image a few weeks ago is that one of these catalogs just showed up in the mail. And uh, I could not believe it. It was sort of the mail sorting equivalent of, say, taking a hike around Mount Diablo and stumbling upon a saber-toothed tiger. I thought that store was extinct. But there it was. And as I flipped through it and I gazed at these strange and wonderful products like the heating, cooling, beverage-based wireless charger, the motion-triggered, touch-free candy dispenser, and my favorite, and here's a pick, something which I think every working parent with kids in distance learning should have, the skin-penetrating infrared heat home sauna with optional foot pad. And uh, as I looked, I had the same thought I remember having when I was 12 or 13. This is truly the store where you shop for the person 
who has everything. Well, if the Sharper Image Catalog is the answer to the question, where do you shop for the person who has everything, the passage that we are looking at this morning is the answer to a parallel question. What do you pray for the church that has everything? And uh, that's the question that this passage answers. And I am excited to look at it with you. And let me say quickly, several months ago when I began daring to hope that I might have this opportunity to preach a candidate sermon to you, I knew that I would select this passage because it so powerfully captures my own thoughts and desires for you. So if you have a Bible nearby, if you would, open it to the book of Colossians uh, the passage also appears in your message notes. Maybe you had time to download those from the Hillside website. But anyway, please follow along as I read. The passage goes like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful Adelphois, brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Well, after greeting them uh, with grace and peace, Paul tells the believers at Colossae that ever since he's heard of them, he's not stopped praying for them. You see, Paul only knows these believers by reputation. He's ever, never actually met them, or at least many of them, and it's thought that this church in the Lycus Valley of what is now Western Turkey was founded by people who heard the gospel from Paul during his two crazy years in Ephesus and then returned home. And anyway, in the first eight verses, Paul explains what it is that he's heard about these believers. And what he's heard has been tremendous. And he zeroes in on three qualities. First, verse four, their faith in Jesus Christ. And by faith in Jesus Christ, Paul could mean their rock-solid belief in Jesus the King. Their unconquerable confidence in the gospel, which is the very particular news of the life, death, 
resurrection and ascension of Jesus of Nazareth. Alternatively, by their faith in Christ, Paul could mean this. He could mean their King Jesus-like faithfulness that they are exhibiting in their life together. The Greek phrase here could actually mean either. My hunch is that he means both. What's the second quality that Paul commends them for? We find it in the second half of verse 4. It's the love that they have for all the saints. And apparently this community of believers, whatever frustrations and dust-ups and disagreements they had, and we, we have to assume they had them because they are, they're people just like us, those disagreements didn't corrode their love for one another. And Paul returns to this very distinct quality of the Colossians' common life, their unquenchable love for each other in the Spirit at the end of verse 8. And then in verse 5, Paul notes the third distinctive quality of their corporate life, and this is the quality that's the power source or the catalyst for the first two, and it's their irrepressible hope. And here, if we read very carefully, we're reminded of something important that we know, but that we often lose sight of. Something that we know if we've read and absorbed Richard Middleton's great book, A New Heaven and a New Earth, a book that I recommend to you. The hope that the Colossian believers cling to is actually, Paul says, not heaven itself, meaning God's sphere of existence and the place that we will go in the blink of an eye upon our deaths in this age, but is rather, Paul says, this is so interesting, something that is laid up for them in heaven, something stored there, hidden away, you could say, like wrapped Christmas presents in mom and dad's closet, ready to burst into the visible world when the Lord of all history decides that it's time. Something which we know from elsewhere in Paul's letters is nothing more than a whole new creation. One that is supercharged with God's own person and presence. And one, I love this, that's characterized by every kind of abundance. Like the prophets say, where no one hungers or no one thirsts and no one feels any fear. And then finally in verses 7 through 8, Paul explains how it was that they came to this hope. And he says, it was through the gospel which was taught to them by one of their own homegrown guys, Epaphras. And you might say this, the Colossian equivalent of someone like Frank Canova uh, or Lynn Fishbeck, who shepherd students right here at Hillside. Now let me ask you, do you have a hunch for why I wanted to preach this passage to you? It's because what Paul experienced with the Colossians, I experienced with you. When I submitted my application back in January of 2020, pre-COVID, uh, pre-George Floyd tragedy, pre-fires, feels like a different world, doesn't it? Uh, I didn't know you at all. 
But very soon thereafter, I began getting to know you like Paul got to know the Colossians through others, through the eight really fine people whom you chose to represent you in your pastoral search. And guess what they talked about? They talked about you. They talked about your unfailing faith and your unflagging love for each other, even in very, very challenging times. In fact, I want to tell you about one of the sweetest moments in this entire exploration process. Back in July, after a number of conversations that were uh, naturally focused on me, Jenny LaSalle offered to answer any questions that Allison and I had about you all. And I knew immediately what I would ask. And this is my actual email written to Jenny and the team dated August 5th. I wrote this, Dear Jenny, would you be willing to tell us about the Don Armstrongs and Corey Chapmans of your church? I'll explain what I mean this way. Don and Corey are FBC Davis treasures. Their dedication to our church is nearly unparalleled. They're always around to serve, give, challenge, and love. Don and Corey feel like members of the staff. None of us could imagine FBC family without them or many others like Jack and Nikki, Dana and Irene, Doug and Deborah. And in our experience, every church has Don and Corey types. Who are they at Hillside? To borrow a phrase from 2 Samuel 23, 8, who are your mighty men and women? And this is Jenny's actual response. Wow. What a lovely opportunity this will be for us each to reflect on those mighty men and women of Hillside whom we know and love. And she's got love in all caps. And in the long Zoom meeting that followed, each one of your search team members picked out two of you, two mighty persons of Hillside, and expounded upon your Jesus-like qualities. Their eyes lit up when they talked about you, your faith, your love, all fired by a powerful hope. And Allison and I were so moved by the stories that we heard that what kind of began as a a respectable flicker of interest in joining your church really became a blazing fire. And at that point, like Paul with the Colossians, we began to pray for you, if not daily, then many times each week. And that led us to press into the very scrutinizing process that Jenny and her team placed before us like marine drill instructors, testing our mettle in every possible manner. But because we long to join you and share in your Be the Light mission, uh, persevering through that pastor search crucible was a real labor of love. Well, that brings us to verse 9. This is the verse that has the passages big therefore. And here we arrive at what I think is actually the most interesting part of this passage. Paul writes, And so, from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, 
and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, that's a, a bit dense, so let's untangle it. What does Paul pray? What does Paul long for God to give this church, which is already so distinguished and so enviable in its hope-fired faith and love? You might even say, what does Paul pray for this church that has everything? He asks that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. In other words, he prays that as a community, they would be deluged, seized, captivated by a fresh grasp of God's specific will and wishes for them. This is interesting. Notice the redundancy here in these verses. Paul might have just prayed that the Colossians would understand God's will. That would suffice to make the point, wouldn't it? But no, Paul lets loose. He prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom, not some, but all, and understanding. But there's more, as they say in late night infomercials selling sharper image like products. Word translated knowledge here in verse 9 is itself a supercharged version of the ordinary Greek word for knowledge. It's not just gnosis, it's epigenosis. The epi serving as an intensifier here. And you could say that Paul's, Paul longs for them to experience a supernova of new spiritual insight into God's specific will for them. And that for a specific reason, that they would be able to produce even more beautiful gifts for the world, like respite days for parents of special needs kids. And friends, this, this prayer, verses 9 through 10, this is what you pray for the church that has everything, a church like Hillside. You pray that God would grant an even deeper understanding of his very particular will, thereby fertilizing the ground for even more fruit. Just a few weeks ago, I stumbled upon a great story. A young woman named Ariel Cordova Rojas arrives on her bicycle at the Jamaica Bay Wildlife Refuge in Queens, New York. And she's been working hard, and she's looking forward to a great day of bird watching and just strolling through the autumn leaves. Well, not long after getting there, she notices that one of the swans in a flock of swans doesn't look quite right. And whereas its friends are trumpeting and bugling and claiming space, this one is slumped over and uh, lethargic. So what does Ariel do? Does she, uh, does she sigh and then just stroll on? No. She approaches slowly. She gently wraps the swan with her jacket and she picks it up. She's going to get this swan some help. Now remember, there are some challenges here. She's arrived on her bike, and she's a mile away from the parking lot. So what does she do? The, the bike in one hand 
and the 17-pound bird in the other. She makes the walk, walks back to the parking lot a full mile. When she gets to the parking lot, she sees a couple there, and she asks if they would be willing to help. They offer her a ride to the subway station. The problem is their compact car is not big enough for Ariel, her bike, and her bird. But they are inspired by her, inspired by her interest in helping this swan. So they call a friend, and together these good ornitheritans drive Ariel to the subway station. She boards. She takes the A train to Brooklyn. The guy next to her, she says, so absorbed in his phone, he never even notices he's riding next to a wild swan. And finally, they arrive at the Wild Bird Fund Clinic where the swan gets treatment for lead poisoning, a 23-mile trek in all to help this bird. Now, are you ready to have your heart melt? Here's a pic. It should come up on the screen. A swan with a stomachache wearing a windbreaker. Great story about loving service to the world. But here's what struck me about it. Ariel had more than just a compassionate heart going for her. You see, the article makes much of her training. Before this, Ariel had spent five years as an animal care manager at a bird rehab center rescuing geese and red-tailed hawks all throughout the city. She was no amateur. She knew something. Well, what's the point? I'm sure you can see it. As with swan care, so with kingdom advancement, insight and effectiveness go hand in hand. And that's why Paul prays that the already wildly fruitful Colossian community would be filled, he says, with even more knowledge of God's particular will and wishes for them. It's so that on top of the great harvests of the past, they can add even greater harvests in the future. And well, it's because, as Paul Prayer indicates, ever greater fruitfulness is tied to an ever firmer grip of God's particular will and wishes that what Paul prays for the Colossians has been exactly what Allison and I have been praying for you. That in this next chapter of your illustrious history, and it is illustrious, you would, verse 9, be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so, verse 10, as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit, in every good work. Now, don't get me wrong. I know that many others over many years have already prayed Paul's prayer for you and that God has answered many times over. And the proof is in your harvests. Bumper crops of sacrificial ministry that I know stretch back 60 years and beyond. Last month, when Allison and I had dinner with Will and Gloria Davidson in Jack and Jenny's house, Will and Gloria told us a story about Hillside's past that we've not been able to forget. They said that back in the late 50s and 60s, when Hillside was located in Lafayette but aspired to move to this location in Walnut Creek, many church families 
worked many nights and some worked second jobs in order to move this church to its present location. Think about the fruit that came from that move. But here's the point. It was a move that sprung from a fresh grasp of God's will. In this case, his will regarding the incredible strategic benefits of this new hillside location. Friends, I do not have every gift. I really don't. Just a few. But one gift I do think God has given me is through study and thought and prayer, always in joyful collaboration with others, is discerning God's will in difficult circumstances. Circumstances in which identifying God's very specific way forward is a little tricky, like the circumstances that all Christians are facing right now. I mean, just think of the tough questions created by events of the last year. Well, I love to think hard about Scripture. I love to gaze at it through, we could say, the sharper image, floor-magnifying lamp of close study. To peer into it and to discover what it means on its own terms and then how it might speak to the challenges of the moment. Which, because of that gift and the way that Scripture connects greater fruitfulness with an ever firmer grip of God's will, that I do believe I could be a good pastor for you. Helping you to become, just like the Colossians, more of what you already are. And helping you to grow in the spiritual insight that will make you even more effective in your own future swan rescues. I appreciate all the kindness of this last week. It has been a joy. Let me pray for you. Dear Father, thank you for this morning, the one we've had just now, to look into your word and to consider your message to us in it. And thank you for all the good that you've poured out on this church and through this church over many decades. And thanks for how from the soil of their faith, love, and hope has sprouted many, many bushels of gleaming kingdom fruit from mission trips to justice for vulnerable children to food distribution to the care of those with special needs. And finally, Lord, I pray that this next season of their common life would be characterized by an ever clearer vision of your particular will in these confusing times in the interest of an ever more abundant kingdom harvest. We pray in the name of your son. Amen. What a joy to be with you this morning. I'm so grateful. I'll never forget this morning. Here's your benediction. As you continue down the path of your light-bearing journey, may our good God meet you with many timely and nourishing gifts, weighty experiences of his presence, exhilarating visions of your new heaven and new earth future, words of uplift from people who love you, 
opportunities to lift the burdens of others, and maybe most of all, firmer grasp of God's will in the interest of even more fruitfulness. God bless you, and we'll see you soon.